Good morning for WDBS Contemporary News. This is David Christie. Yesterday morning, about 75 members of the Duke Afro-American Society took over Allen Building, the administration building of Duke we University. We uh, got rented a U-Haul truck and brought a few people over and sneaked them in. And that's not part of the worst to it. Mass troopers are now starting to march through the gardens. They are all armed with clubs, uh, three tear gas guns, uh, four guns that I So we out. knew then that they wanted a confrontation, a violent confrontation, and I hope they've gotten what they wanted. Uh, listen, they've gassed the place. They, uh, wait a second. They're running around the campus, tear gassing everything in sight. They're running around out Evidently, there still is a lot of activity going on out there, which is the understatement of the year. Uh, they want another grenade. I... It's been 50 years. On February 13, 1969, members of Duke's Afro-American Society seized Duke's main administration center, the Allen Building. A day of anxious standoff ended with the students leaving the building through one door at the exact moment masked police and highway patrol officers in riot gear stormed in through another. A violent confrontation between police and the crowd of supportive students followed. Students were arrested, tried. Some left school. Some returned. From students to staff, faculty to administration, nobody's life, nobody's Duke, wasn't shaken. In Pivot Point, a three-part special series from The Devil's Share, the podcast of Duke Magazine, we join the participants in looking back at the takeover and its results. Part one, Boiling Point. What a pivotal moment that was in Duke's history. Pivotal and a long time coming. That was Valerie Ashby, Dean of Trinity College of Arts and Sciences, and one of a litany of current Duke administrators who are black. Is that the leader of the health system, the leader of the graduate education, the leader of undergraduate education, the leader of the chapel, and the leader of academic affairs are all black. Ashby spoke in February at commemorating the Allen Building Takeover 50 years later, a program organized by the Department of African and African American Studies for which the demands of the protesting students five decades ago paved the way. One panel discussion at the Washington Duke Inn included several members of the group who originally took over the building. Another included current Duke activists. Ashby was introduced by Mark Anthony Neal. The first of those demands by those students who occupied the Allen Building was for the formation of a fully accredited Department of Afro-American Studies. I speak with you today as a James B. Duke professor and chair of the nationally and internationally renowned Department of African and African-American Studies, in large part because of the vision and bravery of those students 50 years ago. Vision. Bravery. Duke now looks back at the Allen Building takeover as one of the vital pivot points in its history. Panelist and original activist Charles Becton cadged note cards used earlier in the day by Duke President Vince Price. This morning I heard President Price and I stole his note cards. I told him I wanted to say something that he said, and I have it here. This morning at a brunch he said, the occupation of the Allen Building was one of the most pivotal moments in our university's history, a moment that would not have been possible without your courage and conviction and your willingness to stand up for what was right. In the action that you took, you forever shifted our sails toward the prevailing winds of justice and equality. Marvelous statement. 
as Ashby said, Your sacrifice has changed Duke. Duke is not the same. Current campus activist Sydney Roberts sat on the second panel. Y'all deserve so much and it's so overdue because y'all fundamentally changed university in ways that I honestly didn't believe was possible. The admiration from students is a constant. That institutional welcome, of course, represents rather a change in perspective. They didn't say that in 69. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Let's be real clear. Right? No, 100%. It, it's, that, it's that memoriam they have in between when something happens to when the university can commodify it for its own value, right? Uh, that certainly was not the way we were treated um, the day of the takeover. Roberts recalls the response to a 2018 protest that disrupted an alumni event. And so to hear Price say something like that feels so painful of how angry he got when we dared to say, we want to honor the memory of the silent vigil by asking for the same things, right? Things students, especially black students, have asked for since not just the Allen Building takeover in 1969, but the silent vigil in 1968, and a history of protests against discrimination before that, starting even long before Duke's first admission of black graduate and professional students in 1961, and undergraduates in 1963. And campuses across the nation, the political passions of activism that were gestating at historically black colleges and universities began to flower. Many of these institutions were unprepared for the futures that their students demanded. Duke was such an institution. The vigil, and especially the takeover, resulted from that lack of preparation. For a weekend in February 2019, the people at the core of that moment, that pivotal moment, came together. They looked backward. They looked forward. They looked at Duke. Start, perhaps, with the Hope Valley Country Club. The, the Afro-American Society, uh, Society was uh, put together in the spring of 1967. That's Duke Afro-American Society founder and president, Chuck Hopkins. The organization of the group came on the heels of protests around segregated country club, Hope Valley. Picketers protested a Duke athletic event at Hope Valley in 1966, and in 1967, one of the early coordinated efforts by black students was the day-long Hope Valley study-in. Students filled Duke president Dr. Douglas Knight's office protesting his membership in the segregated country club that seemed to represent the worst of retrograde racism. We've said a lot about the Hope Valley Country Club thing. And I guess our logic there has been primarily that Dr. Knight, as the president of Duke University, really is in a sense morally committed to discourage segregation in any form in this community and to actively work for racial harmony and the symbol, it seems to many of us, of segregation in Durham is the Hope Valley Country Club. The issue remained a year later when the silent vigil took over the Quad in 1968, following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. On its first night, a group of students took four demands tonight at his home. The third is that Dr. Knight resigned from the Hope Valley Country Club, which practices segregation. Knight wasn't buying. You say make a stand as though I had taken no stand in these matters. I'd have to say to you that I hadn't looked on that as the important issue. 
not nearly as important as the chance to work with members of my community who may not see the matter of country club membership as you do. And to cut myself off from that, I haven't seen and don't see as a wise thing. Hope Valley remained a sticking point through Knight's tenure and beyond. So did Duke's slow pursuit of the goals its black students and their allies demanded. Classes and professors that address the issues of race and African-American history and support for the first generation of black students unprepared for the changes awaiting them at Duke. Takeover participants recalled how at Duke, black students, commonly from largely black communities, felt almost completely isolated. At Duke, I could go two to three days without seeing another black person. That was so totally disconcerting to me. That's Allen Building occupier Michael LeBlanc recalling his first months on campus. Chuck Hopkins saw much the same. And as Mike just said, uh, you, you didn't see a lot of black people. So in all of our classes, we were the only one. And, and, uh, and, so, and, and on top of that, that's a small number. So, you know, I would see across campus, uh, you know, another black student, you know, individual. And, uh, but there was never any kind of interaction. There was, uh, but then, uh, you know, we got here in September. And then, you know, as the fall developed, and you know what happens in the fall. Leaves. Duke got all these trees, so you got leaves covered in the ground. And I wake up one morning, and there's all of these black people that saw raking leaves. And I was like, wow, you know, our presence is here. We are here. And to me, uh, it was like a scene out of Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, to, to, to just see that and absorb that. The students recalled fondly the support they received from those black workers, including maids. That solidarity expressed itself politically, too. The first political thing I got involved in uh, when I came to Duke was with, uh, you know, the local 77. And finding out that these maids, they were making 80 cents an hour. And out of the 80 cents an hour, they were required to buy their own uniforms. And... And these were people like, you know, like my mother and aunts, you know. So, you know, in terms of images, that's what hit me when I first got here. Isolation was far from the only issue the students faced. My English, uh, freshman English teacher was, uh, and I'll say his name, Professor Jordan. And Professor, Professor Jordan was one of the uh, professors here at Duke, because not, not everybody at, at Duke agreed that black people were smart enough to be at Duke. And he was one of the people who, who didn't think black people belonged on the campus. And my uh, essays would come back and be all you know, mocked up and, and mocked up. And I began to talk to him about them. And that's when I learned his view. He said black students are not, black people are not smart enough to be successful at a school like Duke University. And uh, you know, they don't warrant the kind of attention that, that, that professor should be given, should be giving them. But I kept writing my essays. And uh, the next time I went up and, went up and questioned him about an uh, essay I had written, he uh, accused me of having my white roommate from Knoxville, Tennessee, of writing my essays for, because by then he was realizing that the essays were good. And it continued like that. And the, 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 the best I ever got out of uh, his class was, uh, I think, a C. C, maybe a C plus on my essays. It wasn't just faculty 
Becton recalls. My first year in law school, my roommate, Lee Hatcher, James Lee Hatcher, found a room on the, quote, other side of town, three blocks from Central. We called it a Seymour house because you could see more holes in it than anything else. And so our second year, we decided to look for a house on this side of town, the Duke side of town. We went by the Duke housing office on campus, and they said there's just nothing available. About a week before law school was to start for my second year, we came back down to the housing office and said, we need a house close to campus. They said, nothing available. We said, we aren't going to move. We're going to sit right here till you find us a house. I'm happy to report that in 15 minutes, the shortest sit-in in the history of the world. <laughs> Wait a minute. Not only did they find us a house, it was at 1204 West Markham, right behind Baldwin Auditorium. It had a balcony and two rooftop decks. That house shows up again later. Right. Pay attention. Michael LeBlanc. I was taking a uh, political science course with Suke Simpson. I said I wouldn't say his name, so. Um, and, and he wrote the book that we were using. And he would talk and he'd say, the Negro over there, um, what, what do you think? Because, yeah, what do you think? I'm like, what, what did he say? He said, the Negro. And so for first two or three classes, I took it. You know, but I'm 17 years old. And I'm like, I'm, no, this ain't right. I know this is not right. And so next time, I got sweat pouring down. And I'm like, I'm not taking this. And I said, excuse me, uh, Professor Simpson, um, this is really going to get you out. I'm a Negro. You <laughs> graduated. That's right. That's right. 1967, y'all might not think about it. We were Negroes. Negro. We're still, James Brown hadn't made that record yet. <laughs> All right. And, and so, you had graduated from being colored. That, absolutely. So, uh, it, and, and what Beckton said was real clear, because we had just moved from being colored to, I was I'm a Negro. And he said, Negro, sit down. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, no, uh, I'm a Negro, and we just, you know, anyway, we had a battle every time, for the whole semester, every time he said Negro, I stood up and I said Negro. But y'all think about it, to be 17 years old, that, that was not easy back then. In the face of such treatment, in 1967, black students organized the Afro-American Society, Duke's first black student association. Through the association, students continued to present demands to the university. Progress was slow and times were tense. Student protests at places like Columbia and Berkeley had set a standard. Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King had been assassinated, and police had killed unarmed black students in 1968 in Orangeburg, South Carolina. A fire intensified beneath Duke's new and growing population of black students. In late 1968, students had once again approached administrators to address points of concern, including various types of support for black students, the playing of Dixie at official events, and, still, Knight's membership in Hope Valley. The result was, perhaps unsurprisingly, a committee. The executive committee, which served as a committee on committees for the university's faculty, asked the president to utilize that committee as a committee on committees. The time had come to adopt a new strategy. Duke's black community had heard enough of Negros sit down. It was time to stand up.
This has been part one of Pivot Point, the Allen Building Takeover of Duke, a special series from The Devil's Share, the podcast of Duke Magazine. Next on Pivot Point, part two, confrontation. We just uh, got rid of the U-Haul truck and brought a few people over and sneaked them in. And that's, that's all there was to it. Okay. Wait a second. Uh, they're running around the campus, tear gassing everything in sight. They're running around outside. Or oh, didn't that cat himself say that uh, once you bring them pigs on campus, you ain't got no control over them? They knew that before they brought them on here. They knew that. First of all, because they're black people. And understand that. First of all, because they're black people. Please visit sites.duke.edu slash devilshare for the rest of Pivot Point, including links, photos, and more content.